The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, Son, and Spirit, You are a mighty, strong God, and You can indeed move the mountains. this morning, as we consider the text you have before us, one of the things we will be thankful for is that you can indeed keep the mountains from moving. You steady them and hold them. Either way, it speaks to your power. And for that, we give you thanks. You are a strong God, present and near. You know all, you know all that is right and good, and you act and carry it out always. And for that, we bless your name. There is not a single thing that happens apart from you. And so I pray, Father, that as we look at at this day and and the events of, of this morning and the events of our worship service and the events of this afternoon and this evening and tomorrow, that we would look at them all through a perspective of you sovereign over them for our good. And help us to hope in that. Help me to hope in that. Would you draw our hearts and minds here? Lord, most of us here know you. Not all of us, but most of us here know you. And would you draw us, your people, to a place of, of, of not just mental and intellectual conviction, but of emotional attachment to that intellectual conviction. We must know the truth and it must grip us. Would you draw us to that place where we know who you are and we believe you? We trust you. We follow you in our lives. In particular, Lord, would you do that when we face chaos and trouble? I don't know where we all are coming from this morning. You do, and you know that some here are coming from, right at this moment, places of chaos and trouble. And some will face it tomorrow. And so I pray, Father, by your Spirit's power, would you speak a word to us? Would you open up your Scriptures And speak by Your Spirit into our hearts. And give us the grace that we need for this moment. Would You make us a people who rest in You and who hope in You and can give thanks in joy in all circumstances, for this is Your will for us. Lord, I pray, we we await, we long for, we... We beseech You to send the Spirit of God to fall on us now in a unique way. You are omnipresent. We confess that in delight. But we pray that You would be uniquely present in power and You would give life to Your Word to change Your people for the glory of Your Son and for their eternal good. I pray also, Lord, that those here, or those who hear this who don't know You, would find something in Your Word of You. Not just mind candy, but they would find something in Your Word of You that they sense and they know answers to the need that they see in their own heart. Their need to deal with their sin. Their need to find wholeness of life. Their need to walk in joy. Would You speak that to them for their good and for the growth of Your church? The honor of Christ in all of the world. It is in His name that I pray this. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Psalm 75. And the issue that we're going to see here raised is regarding how we are to think about and respond to life. How we are to think about and, and respond to life when we find ourselves as a cast down people. We find ourselves in in some way down and others up over us. How are we to think about that and respond? In their power and their pride that often goes with us as they are over us and we are under, 
How do we deal with that? How do you deal with that? Suffering takes on all kinds of, uh, of different colors and shapes in this world, but particularly this morning, and a lot of what I say would apply to all kinds of suffering, but particularly this morning, we're going to ask and think about suffering that relates to what people do to you. What others do to you. When they somehow cast you down, and it can take on all kinds of forms. It can be somebody making fun of you on the playground. Somebody making fun of you in the office. Or it can get a lot uglier than that, right? People who have power over you, exerting it to exploit you and use you. How do you deal with that? Well, I know how you deal with that. You give thanks and sing praise to God, right? Maybe not, but you should. Does not the Bible say, count it all joy, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you? That's pretty clear. It's in the Bible. But thanksgiving and rejoicing in praise, while they are God's will for us, are hard. Hard to find that in us. Hard to have that come out of us. And that's the issue that Psalm 75 is going to bring up. It's going to show us a couple different grounds for for this kind of thanksgiving and this kind of joy, even in that situation with people putting you down. It's the issue addressed in our psalm, and really it's, it's the main issue repeatedly addressed in the whole third book of the Psalter. The third book. The, psalm is, the book of Psalms is divided into five sections. And we, last week we began, and we'll begin for the next couple of weeks, the third book, which is Numbers 73 to 89. And most of those Psalms, between 73 and 89, in some way or another, touch on this idea. We are the people of God, God's delight, and those folks out there are not. But how come those folks out there have everything? How come they out there are healthy, wealthy, and wise? How come they out there are in power and life is working out for them and specifically life is working out from them on our backs? Why is that? How am I to think about that and process that and respond to that? How am I to, in that, find hope in God and hold fast to Him in such a counterintuitive situation? I give thanks to Him for this? That... In one way or another, that's the common issue throughout this third book of the psalm. We saw it last week in number 73. It's in Psalm 74, which we're not going to cover this morning, but I do need to say a little bit about because it sets the context for Psalm 75, our text. If you were to glance through Psalm 74 or, or read it later, you would notice some things. Written like most of these psalms in this section are, written during the exile, which explains the issue. Written during the exile, the writer is looking at, in Psalm 74, is looking and saying, what's the deal? Our triumphant enemies have hacked the temple to pieces and have burned it down and have totally, utterly crushed us, the people of God. And three times in that psalm, verses 10, 18, and 22 to 23, the psalmist cries out to God with some variation of, how long, O Lord, is this going to go on? How long are you going to let him scoff? at you, mock you, laugh at your name, revile us. This is the promised land. We are your people and your enemies, pagan idolaters, sit with their feet up on our backs, eating all of our stuff, laughing as the temple smolders. How long? Are you going to let that continue forever, God? When will you arise, O God, and defend your cause? They are up and we are down. What? That's the issue in this whole book, Psalm 74, which sets the context for Psalm 75. Very often the Psalms have been arranged in a way that creates a context. Psalm 74 sets the context for Psalm 75. Let me now read it. Psalm 75, beginning in verse 1. We give thanks to You, O God, we give thanks, for Your name is near. We recount Your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. 
Selah. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Psalm 75. The psalm has four main divisions, and verse 1 is a division unto itself. The psalmist speaking for the people of God give thanks, gives thanks and says God is near. And we remember what He has done in the past. So we give thanks. In the second section, verses 2 to 5, the Lord Himself speaks. He's the I there, the first person. This goes together with verse 1. And remembering the context from Psalm 74, he, He's answering the how long? Well, at the appointed time. How long we let that go? And not only do they remember that God is near in verse 1, but now God speaks something to them and He says, at the appointed time, I will judge with equity. He will judge rightly. Now, to judge is not only to punish. Often in our minds, we connect the word judgment with punishment. But really, judgment is just the evaluating and setting things right, which can be punishment or it can be lifting up. It can be vindication. Either way, he's going to do it rightly and justly. He will judge at the appointed time. And in the meantime, what is he doing? Verse 3, holding the whole world together. Everything is shaking like in an earthquake. And wickedness and wicked people strike and everything is tottering. And as people look in fear, it's going to collapse on us. Help! And God says, I am holding the pillars of the earth to keep it from falling. Selah. The term there printed off to the side. Selah, you, you see that term throughout the Psalms. If you read through, you'll see it repeatedly. And perhaps originally it was a sign for like a musical interlude, an instrumental portion of this song. But what it does is it, it creates a pause. It's intended to, when we say Selah, it's intended to make you slow down. Stop. Let something sink in. It's like saying, hold on that thought right there for just a moment. I have something to tell you. Yes, the world is shaking. But there is coming a time when I will fix that and in the meantime, I'm holding the pillars. Let that sink in. And then he speaks to the wicked. So that's what he says to his people. And then in verse 4, he turns, and here's what I have to say to the boastful, to the wicked. Notice again, like we saw last week, the grammar sets these two lines in parallel. He's saying the same thing in a slightly different way. To talk about boastful people and to talk about wicked people is the same. At the heart of boasting, at the heart of pride is wickedness. The heart of wickedness is pride. They are interchangeable. They are an opposing of God in a setting up of self, pride, wickedness. And God has something to say to them. God opposes the proud, and He's going to elaborate on that a little bit. Do not boast, do not lift up your horn. Not meaning a trumpet, but a horn like on a ram or a, or a bull. A common symbol of power, strength, honor, prestige. I say to the boastful, to the proud, verse 5, to the haughty, do not lift up your own horn. Do not speak with a haughty neck. Head held high. Exalting yourself. Lifting up your own strength and your own honor. Do not do that. This is a warning from God to the wicked. And clearly, there is a direct 
warning and confrontation here, but, but see in it also, there is grace in that. Which may not seem obvious, but he need not warn. He doesn't have to. But he warns. And he warns, don't do that. And then the third section says, why not? The universe 6, the third section, here's the why. Not, why shouldn't they do that? For not from the east or from the west or from the wilderness, not, not anywhere here on the earth. This is where lifting up is found. Now, obviously, people are finding in the earth resources and, and intellect, money, physical strength. People do find things here on the earth, gather them together, and build themselves up with those things. And clearly, that's what happens. That's who he's speaking to, people who have done that. But the point is, that's not lasting. It's a mirage. Those things do not actually lift up a person. What lifts up? Verse 7, God executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. That's where genuine, lasting lifting up is found and also genuine, lasting casting down. He'll knock down one as he lifts up another, sometimes in in the providence of, of earthly affairs. And ultimately, at the great appointed time at the end, in which the most serious of all puttings down and lifting ups happens. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. Referring to a practice of what we might call spiking a drink. Take wine and add stuff into it that will heighten the potency. That will sharpen the taste. And all the residue that's left in the bottom of the cup, the dregs. And it, it's a brew. It foams. It's, it's intense. This cup is in the Lord's hand and He pours it out and makes all the wicked drink it. Drink all of it all the way to the bottom, including the dregs. To drain it to the last. This is the image of the cup of the fury of the wrath of God. Revelation 14.10 describes it, the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of His anger. Let's listen to that sentence again. That's an, that's an intense sentence. The wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of His anger, which in equity, rightly, appropriately, at the appointed time, will be poured down the throats of all the wicked of the earth, all the proud of the earth. That is sobering. I don't know how that makes you feel. It's right there in God's Word. It is sobering. Serious. Very good reason, in my opinion, for the warning in verse 4 and 5. Don't go that way. Don't walk this path of, of pride and haughtiness and wickedness. It is sobering. And the fourth section then concludes with, but I will declare it forever. You might say, and I will declare it forever. Meaning, not in a boasting, ha-ha sort of way, by no means, but in a, I will not let this depart from me. I will keep it close. I will remember it. I will speak of it to all that I see, including myself, as I sing praises to this God, to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. At that appointed time, when He lifts up and casts down, there will be a grand reversal. I don't want to forget that. And I want to sing joy, praise over it. Psalm 75. That's the passage. A psalm of a thankful, joyful people. That's what brackets it. Verse 1, we give thanks 
9 and 10, the last section, we will sing praises as we recount this great reversal. And in the context of 74, that's, that's unexpected. And given the fact that these people are assumed to be currently beneath with the proud mighty over them, it's unexpected. How do they get there? How, how do they get to this attitude of, of thanksgiving and joy? Well, that's what the psalmist unpacks. And he gives us two grounds for it. Which are going to form my two observations from the passage. Two grounds for thanksgiving and joy even when other people have you down and they are up. And move right to them. The first one. The first ground of this expected attitude of thanksgiving and joy, which incidentally, it's an expected attitude. I mean, we see it here. The Bible requires it, but don't you want it? I mean, don't, don't you want to be able to walk through, no matter what's happening out here, to be able to walk through with some significant measure of thanksgiving and a heart that is, when it's praising, it is joyful? You want that, right? Well, so here's something about how that can be. First one. Rejoice and give thanks in the light of the supremacy of God over all things. Rejoice and give thanks in light of the supremacy of God over all things. And I I use the word supremacy because... I want to use that word particularly because it's a part of our church's mission to to make explicit the connection between God's supremacy, God's godness, God's ultimateness. You can pick another word if you like there. God's, God's power, His control, His preeminence. God's firstness. We, we want to make that connection explicit between that and joy in the human heart. There's an explicit connection there that I I want to make. So I use the word supremacy, but if some other word works better for you, that's okay. God's control, maybe His sovereignty, His his godness. But because of that, over all things in life, that's the ground. Therefore, we can rejoice and give thanks in all things in life. We come at this in stages in the text. The first stage, starting in verse 1, we give thanks for your name is near. For your name is near. Your name, meaning His being, His person. You, God, are near. And so we give thanks. Well, who is the God who is near? Well, the second stage, they recount some of the things. They remember the wondrous deeds that this God has done. And you look at those deeds in the past, and as you look at them, you're intended to read in them God's nature. Who He is for His people. We talked about this frequently, but it, it's a very common uh, invitation from God. I, I want you to know who I am, and, and I've, I've told you about me in history. So, so look at those events. Read off of them me. Very common. It's here, but that's not the main thing emphasized here. God who is near, and we can know something of Him by looking at the past, but the, but the point that bears the most weight in this passage because there are two verses about it spoken directly by God immediately before the Selah. We're supposed to pause and think what we see in verses 2 and 3. He's the God who is near, who has acted in the past, and says to us, at the appointed time, I'm going to fix this, and in the meantime, I'm holding the pillars of the world to keep it from falling apart. That is His sovereign power. The first ground here for why you can give thanks. I want to plant something in your mind. He says, right now I am biding my time. Not sleeping. There's a difference. I'm biding my time. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Waiting. I have appointed a time. You see God's God's utter control. He looks down at at the world, if if you can see it as, as a great big timeline, and says, I appoint a time right there. Not here. And not here. And not there. And not there. And not there. And not there. Not there. Here. I appoint this time. And we're not there yet. 
He picked. I appoint a time. And we're moving towards that. And there's a whole bunch of chaos until we get there. And in the meantime, I'm holding everything together. The world is shaking. I hold the pillars. Give thanks. Which means there, there's something in, in this. Why? He's got a purpose. Why did he pick that time? He's not a willy-nilly God who just closes his eyes and... He's, he's doing something. What? Well, we don't always know. We, we can know some things that He does at some times, and perhaps, perhaps He allows this time period, perhaps He's allowing the growth of and the flourishing of this pride until this point. Perhaps He's allowing it to flourish so as to let it grow up tall and bloom and show human pride and glory for all that it is. All the ugliness that it produces. All the wickedness that is joined to human pride. We would not know it if He snuffed it out every first time it poked its head up through the ground. We would, we would still be deceived in the thinking we're advancing. We're, we're getting better. We're, we're growing. We're maturing. We'll improve. Okay. Have at it. See what happens. You improve in your methods of destroying each other. You grow in the cleverness of undermining and backbiting. Of casting down to lift yourself up. That's what happens. And I let it grow enough so that it could be seen. Maybe that's what he's doing and I'm picking this time and not this time. I don't know. Perhaps he's allowing it to, to grow and to flourish so as to highlight his own glory in judging it. The grave of every proud world conqueror speaks something. He reigned over all these all these continents, and there are his bones. Just like hers, the slave girl. It speaks something. He's the only God who still lives. Perhaps he lets it go so as to discipline us or disciple us. You, of course, realize this, that if he picks this time and we're living in this time, that that means we've got to bear up under something. Well, there's growth in that for us, is there not? It disciples us. It, it changes us. It molds us. It produces in us Christ-centered steadfastness as we learn to bear up under suffering. It produces often opportunity for witness. As, as God shows, even amidst suffering, look, I am these people's portion and the strength of their heart. They find what they need in me. And the evidence of that is that they aren't finding it anywhere else in the world. A place for witness. Maybe He's doing those things. Ultimately, we don't know. He does those things. Ultimately, we don't know if He's doing that in this situation at this time. Could be some combination of them, but we are not called to give thanks and rejoice because we know all of what's going on. We're called to give thanks because He is near, because He is near and He is this kind of God who has acted in the past, is in charge of time right now, and is holding the world together. He is supreme over everything. Nothing has snuck into your life through the back door that has surprised Him that is not under His sovereign control and will not be addressed at the appointed time. This is important for us to think about, which is why He sets it up before the Selah. It's important for us to stop and think about it because which one of us doesn't already know this? You know, is God in charge of the world, yes or no? The this, this stuff happened that, that thwarts God, yes or no? Everybody answers those questions properly. Most of us here, I think, would answer those questions properly. 
But we need to stop and think about them because we, I think, we display a remarkable ability to immediately forget them when the heat is on. Let me point out two particular things, a a personal application of this, if you will, and, and a corporate one, a church one. Personally, do you realize that in your individual life, He is more real than what you're looking at with your own eyes? He is right there with you in it, whatever it is, whatever is going on. Whatever kind of suffering, whether it's from people or, or a health thing or a financial thing, what, whatever kind of suffering it is, He is right there in the midst of it with you. He has not forgotten. He has not abandoned you or forsaken you. It will not thwart Him. It will not triumph over Him. He stands there with you, holding you and the pillars of your life until it comes to the appointed time when He will correct it. When is that? Maybe in this life, maybe not. I, I don't know. But if... If that would sink into your life and you would remember it, be able to to call it to mind immediately at the point of the temptation to worry, it would undercut fear. We all see this in, in children. Nighttime thunderstorm, where do kids run? Why? What am I going to do about lightning and thunder? They haven't thought that all through. They don't even understand it all. They just know to be near my Father who is strong is a good thing. I can fall asleep in His arms even if there's thunder out there. That's the same basic thing I'm talking about here. And and if at the moment of the thunder and the lightning, if you could remember that and call it to mind, not, not just leave it in your official theology bookshelf, but call it to mind and walk in it, it would cut fear out of your life. It would cut doubt out of your life. It would be a blessing for you personally. And let me move to the corporate one because there's a significant element of, of this psalm that's about the people of God. In the context from 74, they've, they've destroyed the nation, they've burned down the temple. This is, a, this is a big thing about the people of God. So a corporate church, something we need to think about. I think this is probably stronger in America, maybe the Western world, but I don't, I don't know enough about the church all around the world to know for certain. But certainly it's the case in America that many of us as Christians are, are stuck on what is sometimes called a theology of glory. That if you ask us, what do we think the church should look like What do we think the body of Christ should look like? What we say is big, powerful, and triumphant. So we automatically assume big, powerful, influential, quote-unquote, churches are blessed. And small, declining, shrinking churches are not. Purely, right on the surface, without knowing anything about what's going on inside of them, we, we think that because we automatically think, as Americans, big is good. I, I had a conversation with somebody once, and he used a phrase which I, I have not tracked down elsewhere, but he used it in the way as, as if it was a common phrase. He talked about the need to and the desire to build a prevailing church. That was the phrase, a prevailing church. Church. In other words, a church that in its community is prevailing, is triumphing, is is succeeding, probably growing, influencing people, changing the culture, having many people come into its membership, come to faith, a prevailing church. The irony is, in the Bible, closest thing I can find to that phrase, to conquer, read what conquering looks like in the book of Revelation. We conquer by dying. The theology of glory, the theology that says if things were right, we would be on top and all of the wicked would be on the bottom 
That, that general theology, us, we should be triumphant if God were actually blessing and, and they should be below. That, that theology is American, but not biblical. There is coming an appointed time. That's not now. What he calls his people to now is a theology of the cross, a theology of suffering. To walk after him, laying down life, dying. That is conquering in the backwards language of the Bible. A whole lot of Americans don't want to sign up for that. Which is understandable. It's not natural. We have to process this and realize that even if before the appointed time we are walking through chaos and walking through an abiding, long situation where we, the people of God, are beneath and, and those out there who are not the people of God are above, that may be perfectly fine. Entirely appropriate. There's coming a time, but not now. We need to have this sort of a mindset so that we don't start manipulating or working things. Because what happens when we think we should be on top and we get frustrated about that? We start working stuff to get there. We start maneuvering and manipulating, altering the gospel. Casting all of our hope onto certain politicians and certain policies, certain campaigns. Brothers and sisters, not because we are triumphant, but because God is supreme over all things and has appointed a time when He will deal with it and up till then is holding it together. Because of that, We give thanks and rejoice. Personally or as a church body. He has the whole world in His hands. Which includes us. One day He will act to change everything. Which takes us to the second point. The second ground for rejoicing and giving thanks. This expected attitude, rejoice And give thanks, the second point is, in light of the salvation of God. Rejoice and give thanks in light of the salvation of God. He is supreme, holding the whole world together until the appointed time, at which point He will do what? He will judge with equity. Verse 2, verse 7, God executes judgment, putting down some, lifting up others. This is our hope. Ultimately, It's all moving towards that. That He will right everything and His glory will shine and cover all of the earth. We look forward to that day. But obviously, that salvation, the lifting up of of some is a casting down of others. So I need to start there with that. He speaks encouragement in 2 and 3, but warning in 4 and 5 to the boastful, to the haughty, to the proud. He speaks a warning in And if that's you, receive it, please. Receive it in in light of the fact that there is a coming judgment. but, But right now is not that appointed time. Before that, we haven't reached there yet. And until we reach that point, there's still hope. So hear His warning and do not walk that path, but instead humble yourself under His mighty hand. He will not tolerate rivals for His glory. And so I say that warning as God does to the proud, but church, be be careful as I say that, because I'm not just talking to them out there. Notice something. There are two groups of people in the text. There's the the, the righteous, the, the downcast one, the humble one, and then there's the, the proud, the haughty one, the, the wicked one. Two general groups of people. And immediately, 
almost by a knee-jerk reaction, immediately most of us find ourselves identifying with the humble righteous ones. We find ourselves, maybe not right now because we're in church, but on Thursday afternoon you find yourself kind of on God's side cheering, get them. I really, really, really want you, God, to cast this one down. I'm really eager for you to to intervene and to get all those ones who act like they're in charge and like the world revolves around them and who exist to serve themselves and crush all those people like me and, and abuse their power. And by clever manipulation, work situations, lift up their own prestige. I mean, would you just, God, get them and deliver me from them? But here's, here's the hold on. That's me. I'll read that again. All those who act like they're in charge, like the world revolves around them, who exist to serve themselves who use power by manipulation or by by clever argument to get what they want. That's me and you. All of us. So who's the proud? Which side of the psalm are you on? Uh Uh-oh. You should have that response as you think this through. (laughs) By what grounds did I assume that I'm the righteous, humble one? There's only one who ever walked the earth, righteous and humble, giving thanks in all circumstances and rejoicing in God. Perfectly. Only one. Verse 10, there is only one man, the God-man Jesus, who can ever say, as His righteous horn is lifted up from its humbling raised and exalted, that He will cut off the horns of the wicked. Only one. Every psalm, brothers and sisters, every psalm, we need need to think about the psalms like this. It has been said that every psalm is first prayed by Jesus and then only through Him by His people. The only way that you and I get onto the positive side of Psalm 75 is because Jesus first experienced the core of it. And then we are in Him. So if you think about this and you start asking questions, where am I exactly? The boastful, that's me. The one who lifts up his own horn, that's me. Who speaks with, that's me. How do I get on the other side? This is going to lead you to Jesus. This one, righteous and humbled, perfectly righteous, perfectly humble, so humble that this one who had all right and all authority to be regarded as God set aside the right to be regarded as God and came to earth and took on a body. That humble. More humble than that, though. He took on the body of a servant. That humble. More humble than that even, he submitted himself to death at the hands of his creatures. More humbled, more down, more beneath the proud than that even, he submitted himself to death on a cross. This one stood before a judging God. We should read verse 8 and shake in our boots. You should read verse 8 and spend an hour meditating on that verse alone. It is sobering. And this one humbled came and stood before a righteously indignant God. provoked to anger by all of the blatant haughtiness in His creatures who in their humble, meek births and their little bitty horns shake their fists at God 
provoking him to anger. This righteous indignation that he holds, he pulls up his son and pours the whole cup of the fury of his wrath down the throat of his son for you. It is amazing. It is amazing that he would do that. And because of that alone, you, me, proud people that we are, can look at life and say, God is near to me. God is upholding the pillars of my life, not breaking them down. God will, though I am humbled and downcast, even in my pride, He will one day lift me up. He has lifted you up now some, but He will one day lift you up in a to tremendous degree. So you can stand in this psalm, and even in your pride, and I do need to say as an aside, flee pride. God opposes the proud. Even Christians who are proud, flee away from that. Let me come back. You can stand in the psalm, and even in your, your pride, say, I will never drink that cup in verse 8. Bless God for His salvation of me that I did not deserve. Declare it forever and sing it as the next verse contemplates. So we drink this cup today, this cup right here today, which should speak to you a word about the cup you will never drink. And in every moment when, before the appointed time, in every moment before then, when, when you face the suffering, may you call to mind that God has grabbed you by the shoulder and brought you near so you cannot escape. And He holds in His hand a cup and brings it up to you and pours it out on you. And as it runs down over your head, down over your beard, running, running down, it is the oil of blessing and joy that never goes empty. Perhaps you stand there flinching until the first drop hits you. And you find in it the healing of God and not the wrath. You find in it the blessing of God. I'm using a biblical image here. If you don't get oil being poured on you, it's, it's the blessing of God being poured on His people. Anointing them. Touching them. Healing them. Kissing them with His kindness. That's the cup that He has for you, child of God. And it never goes empty. And you can't get away from it. He pours it and pours it and pours it and pours it on you. Because Christ the Son drank the other cup. This is grounds for rejoicing and giving thanks no matter what is going on. And even if now for some reason it is necessary that we be grieved by various trials, we still give thanks and sing in a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory because we are receiving at the appointed time the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. All because of Jesus. All because of the grace of God poured out on your life. This is reality for you. He keeps you in supreme sovereign power. Working out, I don't know what. He keeps you in supreme sovereign power until He fully saves you into the glory of His grace forever and ever and ever. Give thanks and rejoice. Let me pray as we move towards communion.
Father, I, I find it, I find the image of the cup amazing. There's, there is terror and wonder in it both. And I thank you for that. I thank you for describing it in that way so that I can in my mind see it and get it. But I thank you more for the reality that it's about. Wrath coming on me deservedly, but consumed by another. Bless your holy name. And I pray, Father, that you would put your hand on the people here in this room, wherever they are, from wherever they are coming. You would speak the word to them that you need to speak. The word that is comfort now amidst their trial. That is about hope and the salvation that is in Christ. Whatever it is that, that needs to be said. Lord, You have a, a, a sobering holiness to You. And You have an amazing, sweet, gracious love to You. Thank You for that. Thank You for being both. Thank You for showing us both. And thank You for this cup that we're about to drink now. And I pray that as we take it, and the bread with it, that as we take this cup and we drink it, that we would see the blood of the new covenant in it. Shed to make peace with us and forgive us. Thank You, Father. Thank You, Son. Thank You, Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.